You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We are, we are really uh, celebrating this morning the fact that God has brought Dooku and Joyce and their family together with us. This has been the realisation of uh, a dream that we've had for many years. So praising God for that, praising God uh, for all that he's done for us in the Lord Jesus, praising God for his word that we get to open up this morning once again. So I encourage you to keep Mark 7 open. Uh, As with most weeks, we're trying to cover a whole chapter week to week. Uh, We've done that because we're syncing Mark's gospel narrative in with the church calendar, and so we need to arrive at chapter 16 on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, and so we're going to have to hustle to get our way through. We're not going this morning to see um, the, the latter part of the chapter where Jesus performs these two great miracles, but we're going to focus in on his interaction, his confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. And so if you want to particularly have the first half of Mark 7 open, that'll be a good thing. Um, as I said, my name's Jonathan um, and I'm, I'm a pastor here, but I'm just like you. I'm just like you in the fact that I have a, a love-hate relationship with social media. Can I get an amen? <laughs> love-hate relationship. I, I love social media because it connects me with people and with ideas and events that I wouldn't otherwise be connected to, right? This is the great the great benefit of social media. When I first lived overseas, there was no social media. And uh, initially, once I had come back from overseas, I had no real way of connecting with people that I really loved deeply, unless I wanted to spend 10 bucks a minute on phone calls, which I don't. Uh, I don't want to spend $1 a minute on phone calls. I hate speaking on the phone, all right? Let's get that clear from the beginning. So that means I was disconnected from those people. Now, I'm absolutely in real time, connected with those people that I know and love from overseas. That's, that's a great thing. It uh, also connects me with events that I wouldn't otherwise know about. I haven't watched nightly news in maybe a decade, and so I keep in tune with what's going on, not by watching terrible, terrible, terrible commercial news, but by staying in touch with Twitter or Facebook or, you know, those kinds of social networks. The reason I know about Egg Boy is because of Twitter, right? I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that. You can Google that later. So some great benefits there, but I think we're all aware, at least to some extent, and I think our children's children are going to be really aware of the damage that social media can do to us as well. We're kind of the guinea pigs in this whole huge cataclysmic, revolutionary social experiment that's going on. Our kids' kids are probably going to be a little more well-educated and a little more fearful of getting so uh, deep into these social networks without really knowing what's going on and how it's affecting the way we think. One One of the ways that's driving us in a negative direction is just our propensity to speak to one another in those networks in ways that we would never speak to one another face-to-face. Right? How easy it is to condemn and slam somebody with a few strokes of the keyboard or your phone in ways that you would never dream of doing 
if we were having coffee together. Another way that the social networks are, I think, really forming us and shaping us in a negative sense is I think they're driving us to be more and more preoccupied with our, our, the, the image that we project of ourselves, that is our outward appearance rather than our actual inward reality. Does that make sense? Through social media, I can quite easily project and maintain an image of myself which has little or no resemblance to who I actually am. All it requires is a fairly regular posting of that projected image, that fake myth about who I, who I, want, who I want people to think I am. And, and, and so we've got a lot invested in this because... So much of our positive reinforcement in life, so much of our encouragement comes through clicks, through likes, right? You can go without any verbal encouragement from anybody for weeks, and as long as the likes keep coming in, it kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of a surrogate form of encouragement. And so we have this deep drive to keep projecting an image that people will like, whether or not it's actually true to who we are on the inside. Now, I think this is part of the human condition. I think this was going on, as we're going to see, in Jesus' day. I just think that these networks take what was already there and turn it up to, like, nuclear level. Narcissism. I know that this is true because, and I know the negative effect that it can have on us because last night... I was sitting on the couch, scrolling through Instagram and just feeling myself getting more and more discouraged. See, like feeling myself getting more and more envious. Because what I'm seeing is just photo after photo of beautiful people doing beautiful things and I'm sitting on the couch bored or I've had a really difficult day with my wife or family, right? Like the contrast between that image and the reality of my own life is so stark that I I can't help but be discouraged and the only way to get encouragement again is to participate in the myth. Well, I'm just going to put photos up there that make me look way better than I am, taller, stronger, more handsome, right? And then people will like those images and it will redress the balance a little bit. But the stream of images coming from other people is so relentless that I'm never going to actually make it, make it up the ladder. I'm never going to have enough followers to feel like I'm, I'm liked. I know this is true because I have seen people have taken photos of me and put it online or of our church and put it online, put it on Instagram, and I know that those images make everything, me and us, look way better than we actually are. I've, been, I've spoken at events where the photo has been taken just in the right way so it looks like there's like 5,000 people there instead of 500, and I know that there wasn't 5,000 people there. I can see through the myth, but no one else can. This is happening over and over and over again, driving us to be much more preoccupied about our external image than about what's really going on inside. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. It's a problem 
that was blighting the people of God in Jesus' day. So we've seen this, right? We've seen this over and over again. This confrontation that Jesus has with the religious rulers of the day. The Pharisees were a very conservative sect of, of Jews who believed strongly that obedience to the law would bring about the kingdom of God. Obedience to the law would establish God's kingdom on the earth and usher in God's Messiah. So they saw that disobedience in generations before led to the exile to Babylon, the destruction of Jerusalem. They saw those things. They feared those things. And so they said, in place of disobedience, which leads to exile, we're going to make sure everyone is absolutely obedient to everything And maybe through that, God's blessing will come. It's actually a very logical point of view. And they were committed to it. They were so committed to it that they thought the best way for us to get everyone to obey God's law is to add piles and piles of our own laws onto God's law, which will ensure that people will obey God's law. If we just add the amount of laws, then we will increase the obedience kind of works logically, unless you believe in the sinfulness of human hearts. And then all you see in the future is more and more disobedience. But this was their idea. We, We will come up with a whole 600 plus of our own laws, which will ensure that God's laws are obeyed to the letter. And so this is, this becomes their religion. Obedience becomes their Religion, it's how they act out their love for God. The problem is, is if you make outward obedience the main thing, then pretty soon everything becomes about outward obedience. That becomes the litmus test. That becomes the, the, the test by which you judge whether someone is God's person or not. So for the Pharisees... To the degree by which you were able to obey every law, that was the degree to which you were God's son or daughter. That's why they keep showing up, trying to catch Jesus disobeying the law. If they can catch Jesus disobeying the law, then they can discredit Jesus altogether because if you disobey the law, you're not God's person. You're not his son. You're not his daughter. You can easily discredit Jesus' claim to divinity by catching him disobeying not only one of God's laws, but one of our laws, one of our traditions. And that's exactly what they're doing in this passage this morning. So let's check it out. Let's look at it. Verse 1 to 5. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. That's Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples live according, sorry, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? 
instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands. Now, first thing to know is that this is not about germs. Okay, this whole interaction here, I know all the mums are like freaking out. Oh, they didn't wash hands. I'm pumping like (laughs) methylated spirits onto my kids' hands if they scratch their head before they... We got a little bit precious about germs along the way. Um, the good news is that stuff doesn't do anything good for you, so you can get rid of that, that gel stuff, all right? I'll just give you the tip. Um, this is not about that. These guys didn't know what germs were. There was no germ theory of disease. Um, this is about religion. This is about religious observance. This is about traditions developed by the Pharisees As I said, a mounting list of traditions in order to increase obedience in God's people. And for the Pharisees, they had this, I was going to say strange idea. We're going to see it's probably not that strange, actually. But this this strange idea that the more outwardly pure you were, that would sort of translate into inward purity. That the more outwardly religious you were, the more inwardly pure you'd become, the more godly you'd become. And so they're aghast. Why, why aren't Jesus' disciples, if he's a rabbi, right, if, if he's really, if this power that he's exercising is really from God, why are his own disciples, who he's got complete control over, right, he's telling them how to live day to day, throughout the day. How come they are not obeying this tradition, this tradition of the elders, this extra biblical commandment, to wash hands before you eat. Why aren't they increasing their obedience so that God's presence, his blessing might come? And and Jesus' response, listen, if you are like the Pharisees, if you have a lot invested in your public image, in your public righteousness, right, your Instagram-filtered religiosity, then Jesus' response is a, is a savage burn, all right? Listen to this, verse 6 to 7. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. That, that, that is a, that's a sick burn from Jesus. If you, if you have memorized the first five books of the Bible, if you know Isaiah better than anyone else on the earth, and Jesus says, yeah, I got something from Isaiah for you. This is about you, Right? Not just this applies to you, but Isaiah was talking about you. Hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How far is it from your lips to your heart? Is it 20 centimeters? Jesus says, that gap makes all the difference in the world. These people honor me with their lips. Outwardly, in the, in the Instagram world, they are looking good. But where it counts in the heart, 
They are far from me. In fact, their worship, their words, their lips, what they say is vain. It's worthless. It's meaningless. And to cap it all off, they teach human commandments as commandments from God. So this is Jesus saying, we don't have to obey your commandments because they're your commandments. God never said anything about washing hands before you eat. And on top of that, we don't need to listen to you because you are a hypocrite. You know, in, in Greek culture, in the language, in this, this is written in Greek, the, the word hypocrite just means a, it's, a, it's a stage term. It's a term from acting. To be a hypocrite actor is to be able to play different roles, and depending on the role you're playing, you hold up a different mask. That's what he's saying. You're projecting an image that it doesn't find its reality inside you. You're a hypocrite. Now, here's the thing, right? Because it is so easy to chuck the Pharisees under the bus. The easiest thing in the world. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. They are the easy whipping boys of the New Testament. Them and Judas, easy. The thing we have to remember is that If you're here this morning and you're part of this church because you want to make all of life all about Jesus and you're here on a Sunday morning because you want to hear God's word preached purely without fear or favor, you are more like them than you are like the sinners and tax collectors. We are more like the Pharisees than we are like the sinners and tax collectors. That is, we are more like the the people in the story who don't get it than the people in the story who do. Jesus is not talking to filthy, evil, pagan heathens out there. People who are eating Big Macs instead of the Word of God, right? He's not, he's not talking to the other. He's talking to people who are zealously serving Yahweh. With all of their being, they were making all of life all about Yahweh. They were zealously soaking up the scriptures. They never missed a day at the temple, right? They were like us. And so I think we need to hear these, we need to read these confrontations and we need to ask, where is the danger, Lord? Where am I like them? Where am I prone to make the same mistakes? So the question I want us to ask this morning, and really this is the whole thing, is how do, how do we seek to justify ourselves? How do we seek to purify ourselves in ways that mimic the error of the Pharisees? How do we, like them, try to justify ourselves? How do we try to mend our brokenness? How do we try to cleanse our sinfulness in ways that are exterior rather than interior? Does that make sense? That's the whole thing this morning. So if it doesn't make sense, put up your hand. Okay. Thank you for your honesty. This is what I'm trying to drive at. If it's true 
that we are prone to make the same errors that the Pharisees have made. And if one of their major errors is in being self-righteous, justifying themselves before God, purifying themselves through washing of hands or any other like religious observance, if their error is making themselves right, pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, self-made religion, if, if that's their error, where, how do we do that? How do we make the same error? Where do we go wrong in trying to heal our own hearts, purify our own darkness? And once we've exposed those errors, what does Jesus offer us in its place? Yeah, so I want to look at five ways that I think we see the reality of our brokenness, our sin, our pollution, our darkness, our sickness. We see the reality of that inside of ourselves. Five ways that we respond to that that are unhealthy, and then we'll finish with the way that Jesus deals with it, which is revolutionary and eternal and beautiful and perfect. All right, so you with me? Five ways. First way. First way we deal, we try to deal with the reality of our brokenness, our sin. First way is we, we ask God for more rules and regulations. This seems counterintuitive because we think, well, we're Australians, right? We, we love freedom and, and we, you know, we, we, we rebel against authority and, and we just well, love to stick it to the man. And we, we want liberty, not, not rules, not regulations. I would dispute that, my friends. I think actually, as a nation, as a quite immature nation, we actually really love rules and regulations. Witness the fact that we are the most over-legislated civilization on the face of the planet, right? In other countries, like in Italy, if they try and tell you you've got to wear your seatbelt, the government house gets burnt down, all right? Like, they, they, they do not respond well to being told what to do. America is the same. It's like the, the, the land of the free. It's the cowboy. We, we just kind of say, all right, new laws, okay, cool. And here's why I think we like it. It makes life easier for us. We don't have to take responsibility for ourselves. If you give people a choice, you can do this or that. There are consequences for this and consequences for that. Suddenly, you've got to be a big boy, right? You have to take responsibility. My actions have consequences. If you say instead, you can't do all this stuff, then it's like, ah, well, that means I can just relax and do what I'm told. It it keeps us juvenile, keeps us dependent. I'm not making a political argument here. I'm saying we do this with God. Like, give us more rules and more regulations, and then I can follow them. I don't need to discern what you want me to do. I don't need to be responsible for my actions. Just tell me what to do, God, and I'll do it. There's something very comforting to a lazy person in just being told what to do. This is why some of us really like religions or traditions where we're told what to do. We like church services where we know when to stand, sit, kneel, what words to say, and it's the same thing every week because then I don't have to think about it. I don't have to be responsible for my actions. The problem with all of this, obviously, 
is that rules and regulations don't do anything to change your heart, and it's your heart that's broken. Rules and regulations can give an appearance, an Instagram-filtered appearance that I'm a pure and righteous person, but they don't change anything in me. So this is what Paul was dealing with in the early church, and particularly in in the church in Colossae. And so in chapter 2 of Colossians, this is what he says. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Same problem. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. They don't treat the problem. They just try and hold back the tide. It's like putting Band-Aid on a skin cancer. It gives the appearance that I'm doing something It does nothing for the problem because the problem is so much deeper. It's in me. So some of us respond to the reality of our brokenness by saying, just give me more rules and regulations. Let's try and curb this thing. Number two, some people just despair and give up. It's like, I've been a Christian for a long time and I'm still struggling with these habitual sins and so... Rather than rallying against them for the rest of my life, I'm just going to give up now. Ugh. Again, it's, a, it's very attractive to the lazy person. If I give up, I don't have to try. Give up and despair. These are the kind of people who just are like, the world is going to burn, and I'm just praying for Jesus to come back and make everything right. I went walking yesterday with my kids, with the India and Judah. We went to um, Lerdido State Park. We love it out there. It's so beautiful. And we uh, went for a walk, and we made it all the way to Graham's Dam, which at the moment is just a little greasy pool. But we made it there, and uh, we made it there in spite of Judah asking me every five seconds how much longer this walk was going to be. And then... We stayed there for a while, and on our way back, like 10 feet into the walk back, he, Judah fell over and cut his knee open. It's blood coming out of him. And he's in bits. In bits. He, you know, some kids are just like, get up, dust it off. What? He is not that kid. He's like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. I don't know if we need to get a helicopter or if an ambulance can... <laughs> So I'm like, I'm trying to work against this. I'm just like, just get up, dust it off, you know, try and get him back on his feet straight away. Dust it off, that blood doesn't, that blood will stop soon and, and, and you just need to walk it off. And he did walk it off for about five paces before he just plunged onto the ground, like face down. I'm not going anywhere. And I had to pick him up, put him on my shoulders, carry him all the way home because he wasn't going anywhere. He had given up. 
And this is what some of us do when we're confronted with the reality of our sin. Well, that thing I've been struggling with for so long, or that thing is so bad, that wound is bleeding so much, I'm just going to lie down on the ground and hope that someone will come and pick me up and carry me home. That's their view of sanctification. I'm not going to do anything. Jesus is just going to put me on his shoulders and carry me to the celestial city. And then God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did nothing, right? (laughs) We ask for more rules and regulations. Maybe we give up, despair. Number three, kind of the opposite of that, I guess, is that we become proud and judgmental. So that we see the reality of the sin, the brokenness in me, and the best way to deal with that is to become proud and judgmental. That is to look at other people and say, at least I'm not like that guy. That's a really good way of making yourself feel better about your brokenness. It's like the, it's the Instagram, right? It's the Facebook, well, I've got 2,000 friends. Even I'm not like that guy, he's got five. Right? It's a way of dealing with the fact that I don't have 10,000 friends. You, you, you know, whatever, you translate, but the best way for me to deal with the reality of my sin is just to put it in contrast with that other guy who's so much worse than me. We do this all the time with Hitler, at least I'm not like Hitler, I'm not like that guy in New Zealand who killed a bunch of people, I've never killed anyone, wanted to, but never actually done it, right? I'm not like, at least our family isn't like that family with those kids who are out of control, like our kids are a bit out of control, but they're not like that. Like we do this. We're, this is the most natural thing in the world. As long as I compare myself to someone who's worse than me, I'm going to be okay. I found that uh, I'm more than happy to take my kids to the pool on Saturday morning because I walk into the pool and look around at the other dads and I'm doing okay. I've still got all my hair. kind of working on the belly a little more than they are, right? And so I can, I can I go to the pool then, I'm feeling good. Just don't take me to the pool when that's a bunch of guys in their 20s or their late teens, because then I'm, I'm, I'm the worst guy in the room. I've got no chance. We do this in life. Everyone's nodding because everyone knows that they do it all the time, but we do it in our relationship with God as well. Yeah, I'm broken. Yeah, I'm, I'm polluted. But I can make all of that go away if I just contrast my darkness with his blackness. We just moved into a new home, and I was kind of bummed out about the fact that our, our backyard wasn't as good as I want it to be. And then I went upstairs, and I could see everyone else's backyards. I was like, we're, we're okay. We're good. <laughs> we don't have any burnt-out car in our backyard. We're not growing any illicit substances. We have grass. We do this all the time. And what it produces in us is pride. It, this is the self-made religion. It's the self-made man. Look at all that I've achieved. At least I'm not like that guy. Rules and regulations. Despair and give up. Proud and judgmental. Here's another one, and this is becoming much more popular. This response, yes, I know that I'm broken and sinful and dark, but God doesn't care about that. Like that idea of sin and judgment and condemnation, that was an old school religious thing that 
angry white guys used to talk about, but now we know that God actually doesn't care about sin. He just loves us as we are, and we don't need to do anything. We don't need to change. The things that God used to be angry about, he's now in favor of. He's celebrating over my sin. It's like dad, dad used to struggle with anger and, and then he, he started taking antidepressants and now, he, now he's just happy all the time. That's how we think of God. Old Testament, angry. Then old school churches, judgmental. Now he's just a peace-loving weed smoker and he's, just, he's kind of on board with whatever I'm about, he's on board with that. He's like an each-to-your-own kind of God. And the best way we can reinforce this is by arranging and and gathering for ourselves other Christians, church communities, pastors, speakers, authors, who are all saying the same thing. It's not hard to do that these days. So I deal with the reality of my sin by saying it's not really a reality at all. It's just cultural forces at work that I just need to move on from. We're enlightened now. I got lots of good preaching material from yesterday when we were at, at the state park. Judah and I, when we were, we were at that Graham's Dam, that little slick, greasy pool, um, we, we were out catching lizards and frogs, which is what we do most days anyway, but there was just a really good opportunity because they were everywhere and so we left India to her own, her own devices, which is always a mistake. I, mean, I love her with all of my heart, but she, she, she's a bit different in a great way. But when we came back from our little adventure, we found India absolutely caked from her waist down in mud, just caked in this greasy blue-green algae mix with rocks and fish bones and, like, just caked. She doesn't have any problem with that at all. That's the most natural thing in the world for her to do that. I was like, what have you done? Why are you covered in mud? I was thinking of my nice, clean, my my, my nice leather seats and what they're going to look like when she's done with them on the way home. And I'm thinking about Renee, who's just washed all these clothes and now... Shoes are full of mud. and what have, what have you done? And her response was, what's the problem with mud anyway? Which is a decent response, because I didn't know what to say. <laughs> Let's probably buy that for 100 bucks a packet down at Indota. What's the problem with mud anyway? Yeah, I know. What's the problem with mud anyway? I think that's what we do. We see that just our hearts clogged full of crap. And we say, well, what's the problem with that anyway? I'm okay with it. I was born this way. And it turns out God's okay with it as well. I read it in a book once. It wasn't the Bible, but it was a bestseller. All right, and, and that's what we do. And so we, we make it okay. Asking for rules and regulations. Some of us despair and give up. Others become proud and judgmental. Some of us think, well, we, it's there, but it doesn't matter anymore. And then there's a, a fifth group of people. This is, this is for you who are the type A personalities in the room. This is the, just the believe and achieve response to brokenness and sin. 
It's the same response that gym junkies have when they see they've, they've got like 2% body fat. I'm like, well, I'm going to kill that thing. I'm, every morning, 5 o'clock, I'm going to be there for two hours, right? It's this kind of mentality. Believe and achieve. That sin in my heart, I'm just going to absolutely own it. The gym I go to, it's just plastered with slogans like this. Like, if you can imagine it, you can achieve it. If you can dream it, then you can become it. It's just about being better than all those other lazy morons and getting it done. That's the difference between some loser Christian who's struggling with sin and me who's triumphing over it. And here's why that one, though wrong, is so insidious. It's insidious because like so many false doctrines, there's a grain of truth in there. Because if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to need some serious perseverance. You're going to need to grind it out sometimes. You're going to need to grit your teeth. You're going to have to do that extra rep when you don't want to, right? You're going to have to read your Bible more. You're going to have to pray more than you are. You're going to have to fast. You're going to have to do these things. And so to this kind of person, that all looks like I'm going to try harder and I'm going to achieve it. If I can imagine it, I can achieve it. The problem with that is that if we come at our spiritual brokenness with a believe and achieve winners kind of mentality, the problem is as hard as we try, we can never get down deep enough to where it really matters. And so you just end up like a Pharisee. Who read their Bible more than anyone else? The Pharisees. Who made sure they fasted, prayed, and tithed. Right? In Matthew's version of this, Jesus says, you guys, you tithe mint and dill. They're tithing out of their spice rack. When have you done that? Right? Those guys believed and achieved. They were committed to the cause. They were doing everything they could to obey all of the commandments, but it had no effect where it mattered, which is in their hearts. So unless your perseverance and your steadfastness and your commitment to Bible reading and prayer and praise and tithing and giving and all that stuff, unless that is in tune with God's Holy Spirit and flowing out from the work that he's already doing in you, then you're just wasting your time. Your religion is in vain. You're washing cups and dishes and couches. I mean, couch. I get the cups, the kettles, couches. That's how committed they were, at least on the outside. And that's all we're doing. We're only making what's outside look better. I remember in my late teens, I would hang out for Sunday night church, not because I loved Jesus or enjoyed the worship. I didn't like the worship. The songs made me feel uncomfortable, right? The, all of that stuff, I could take it or leave it, but the vital thing about Sunday night at church where I was growing up was there was confession. And if I could get to confession, 
If I could get to the part of the service where we say we're sorry, then I could be clean. I could have a clean slate so that I could go and get dirty the rest of the week, right? That's how I thought about it. Say the prayer, receive the minister's absolution, which would enable me to go and do what I like for the rest of the week. Does that have any effect on my heart? No, it just enables me to sin. It does the opposite of what it's intended to do because there is no heart in the doing. There is no inward conviction in the confession. So I'm out of time, but I need, you, I need to give you at least a little picture of Jesus' radical alternative, all right? All of the things we've talked about, those five things, they're all the same in, in, in this way. They all work from the outside in. That's what they try and do. I take what's outward and try and make it do something inward. Jesus' radical alternative is to work from the inside out. He's the only one who can do this. To work from the inside where I desperately need help and to, and to work outward from there, starting in the most vital place, starting in my heart. Because the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Let me just read for you what he says about this in verse 14 and following. He says, it says this, Mark, Mark says, summoning the crowd again, he, he told them, Jesus said, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come from out of a person are what defiles him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a problem is what defiles him. From, for from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Our biggest problem is our hearts. And we are prone in this day and age to take bad things that people do and say, well, he you know, grew up in a single-parent family, or maybe he came from a poor neighborhood, or he's from that culture, or you know, he never had a good education, or he played too many video games. Or we, we come up with all kinds of outward reasons why this person might have done that thing. You know, that those things might have an influence, but the biggest problem all of us have is our hearts. We begin with that problem. Before the world messes us up, we begin with broken hearts. And Jesus says, it's out of the heart that all of these things come. What, you mean even like things like sexual immorality? I thought that was more to do with my genitals. No, it's your heart. Theft? Isn't that just because I grew up poor? No, your heart is the problem. Yes, these other things might play a role, but the biggest problem you have is a problem of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
your issues with anger or gossip or slander, these things are issues of the heart. Your issue with pride and self-righteousness, Jesus says, is an issue of the heart. And so we desperately need someone who can do heart surgery and all those things we talked about don't get anywhere near it. So what are we going to do? If we can't get anywhere near the problem, then we need someone who can. And I just want to leave you with this vision, this vision of the prophet Jeremiah. Some of you are familiar with this. It's a vision of hundreds of years before Jesus came, a vision of what he would bring for God's people who had massive problems with their hearts. Check it out, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is what God says. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration, right? This is absolutely happening. Nothing will stop this from happening. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is the new covenant that Jesus brings. This is the new wine that bursts the old wineskins. This is the kingdom of God brought to us in Mark's gospel. And because of Jesus' coming, because of his living a perfect life, his death on our behalf, his resurrection to everlasting life, because of all of that, we now have a relationship with God where he forgives our inequities and never again remembers our sin. That's how our hearts are healed. It's something that he does in us and for us. And from there, we live each day with his law written on our hearts. We live each day with him, with him. Not under him, not over him, but with him. And so as we endeavor to make all of life all about Jesus and walk in step with his spirit, it's then that we can finally live out a life of Christ-likeness and godliness. Not applied to us like some kind of band-aid from outside, but happening dynamically within us each and every day. It's an amazing act of powerful grace. Now we're going to see how this comes about through Jesus' ministry and particularly his death when we get to Easter, his resurrection. And then we're going to pick it up after Easter. We're going to teach 10 weeks in a series called Life in the Spirit. And we're going to talk about what it means to walk in step with the Spirit, what it means to be filled and baptized by the Spirit, what it means to exercise gifts of the Spirit. We're going to touch on some of those tricky 
concepts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and healings, and we're going to do all of that, and our prayer is that it won't just function to talk about some theological ideas, but that actually he would empower us and anoint us and baptize us so that we can more and more live out the reality of who we are, not who we're projecting ourselves to be, but of who we are as God's children who have been given new hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word from Mark's gospel. We thank you for Jesus' forthrightness, his honesty with us. I pray that if we need to be rebuked by him this morning, that we will be rebuked. If we are starting to become like Pharisees, that he will point out, our, that you will point out our error and that we will respond with humility and contrition and repentance. Lord, please save this church from ever becoming more about the outward externalities than about the reality of life in the Spirit. Please keep drawing us back to the heart of the matter, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.